foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of you, but of him, you are in Christ, Jesus, who came for us wisdom from God, and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. For that, as it is written, he who glorifies Let him glory in the Lord. Amen. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know 
that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Thank you. And uh, we're looking at this continuation of the conversation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders who are not happy with him having just healed a man on the Sabbath day. But before we look at that, this is a this is not something I left on my bedside table. Uh, <laughs> this is a, pe- a petri dish, okay? And uh, a petri dish is when you basically you take a sample of something and you place it into an environment where you can study the sample that you're looking at, right? But it's not the only part of it. It's, it's just a sample of the thing that you're studying. And uh, the reason I've, I've brought this out and you're like, why Petri dish? And it's because of this. Um, the Petri dish in this story, John chapter 5, is the religious leaders of Israel, okay? They are the Petri dish. They're the ones who've been specifically taken out of their lives and placed into John chapter 5 for us to examine and us to study and us to consider uh, the reactions to Jesus. The reason that this is happening is not so that we would respond to John chapter 5 and then say, oh, those pesky Jews, That's not what's meant to be happening here. Sometimes that's what happens when we read through the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy as we watch the people of Israel disobey God time and time again and we think, why don't they just get it right? But that's not how you're supposed to be reading those chapters. What you're meant to be doing is like, I'm just like those people. But for grace in my life, I would be going through what they're going through. And so the reason that they're being placed into this little petri dish here in John chapter 5 is as a sample of the whole of humanity. Humanity as a whole are just like these religious leaders. So what I don't want for us to do this morning is read this passage and think, man, we're not like that. We're meant to read that and say, is that me? Am I like this? Is that, is that how I am responding to the claims of Jesus. It's for us to search our own hearts. Now remember, one of the big themes of John's gospel is that of the courtroom with witnesses, right? We have John bearing testimony. We have people giving their their witness statements of what they've seen Jesus do and heard Jesus say, and then reporting that testimony to others. Now Jesus has just healed a man who was lame for 38 years up there at the pool of Bethesda, and the Jewish religious leaders are angry at him, and they want to kill him. For two reasons they want to kill him. The first reason is he healed the man on the Sabbath. They, they didn't want to kill him for that, but they were pretty mad. And the response is, can become a stoning to death. The second reason that they want to kill him is because when they challenged him about that, And said, who do you think you are healing on the Sabbath? He said, in essence, God can do what he wants on the Sabbath. And since I'm God, I can do what I want on the Sabbath. And they got mad at this because he's claiming to be God. 
So after that, they not only hated him and sought to continue to harass him, but they began to plot his death. In chapter, in, in chapter 5, verse 19 to 29, which we looked at last time we were in John, Jesus was given his own witness statement. He was coming to the bench, as it were, and given his own testimony. And if you look through that section, verse 19 to 29, it's all in the third person. Jesus doesn't say I, he says the Son, the Son, the Son, the Son, over and over again. The Son of God, the Son of Man, He. But now as we get to verse 30, the conversation continues, but now he's saying I, I. I, and he's going into the first person, and essentially he's claiming to be that son that he was speaking about in verse 19 to 29. What we're looking at this morning is essentially the, the, the motives of unbelief, why people don't believe as we look at the father's testimony in verse 30 to 47. And we're asking the question, why will people not believe the claims of Jesus? Why will they not? Uh, and I'm speaking as an atheist. Sorry, I was really an ex-atheist. I'm not one anymore. Like, get him off the pulpit! Uh, right. So, uh, the Father's testimony, verse 30 to verse 47. Now, of course, so first of all, what we're going to look at this morning is the evidence for believing that Jesus really is who he says he is. Okay? The evidence for believing that is massive. And, uh, and then we'll look at the motives of unbelief. So first of all, the evidence for that belief. And we see in verse 30 to 31, Jesus given his own testimony. Sort of, he's, what he's doing in verse 30 to 31 is he's concluding everything he's just said already in this conversation. This is a conclusion of the situation. So in verse 30, he's essentially summarizing and concluding everything he just said in verse 17 and verse 19 to 29. I can of myself do nothing. Well, he said that in verse 19. Uh, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. He says, as I hear, I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the father who sent me and verse 20 the father loves the son shows him all things that he himself does and will show him greater works than these that you may marvel this idea of knowing God's uh, will and doing God's will but then Jesus comes to the end of his own personal witness statement and verse 31 and he says if I bear witness of myself my witness is not true and he's not saying um, that I can't actually bear witness of myself. What he means is, if I alone am bearing witness, and he's, he's, he's quoting a passage of scripture in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're not going to turn there, but Deuteronomy 19 verse 15, where in God's law, the very word of God, which Jesus wrote by the Spirit to Moses, all that, uh, is that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. So Jesus is saying, I've given my testimony, but I know my testimony enough uh, is not enough because I wrote in Deuteronomy 19 that there needs to be two or three witnesses. So that's Jesus' summary of his testimony. Now we come to the Father's testimony in verse 32 to verse 47. He says in verse 32, there's another who bears witness of me, and I know the witness which he witnesses of me is true. So I'm not the only one. I have someone else who's bearing witness and his witness of me, his testimony of me is the truth. And then we see in verse 33, you've sent to John and he bore witness. And we're left, is it John? Is John the guy in verse 32 who's bearing witness? Well, what we're seeing here is that this, this is God the Father 
bearing witness through three different ways. God the Father testifying of his Son in three different ways. And the first way is through John the Baptist. Verse 33 to verse 35. I sent you, you have sent to John. Right? When John the Baptist was doing his ministry, you guys went to him. The Jewish leaders sent some of their own to him, and you heard what he had to say. You heard what he had to say about God, about sin. You heard what he had to say about me. You heard all that John had to say. And if you, if you go down here, it says in verse 35, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. What Jesus is saying here is that there was a time for a little while there that you actually recognized John as a prophet. Later on, they're going to be like, is he a prophet? If we say he's not, they're going to kill us. So we'll say he is. But Jesus is saying here, who knows their hearts, there was actually a time where you did believe that he was a prophet. And you went to him to hear from God. You resonated with what he was saying. Probably up until the point where he called them a brood of vipers. Then they were like, he's not a prophet. <laughs> right? But up, up until that point, he's a prophet of God. He's sent. And so they're rejoicing in his light. And John publicly pointed to Jesus. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. And they're like, nah. So the Father's testimony through John, the final prophet of the Old Testament, the, as it calls, calls John in Luke's Gospel, the prophet of the Most High. The final prophet of the Old Testament came and said, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God. You heard him say that, and you refused to believe his claims. So that's evidence one of the Father. The second evidence is the miracles that Jesus is performing in verse 36. I have a greater witness than John for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus says in verse 34, he isn't dependent upon a man like John to bear witness of him. He has something greater than that, the works of the Father. Now, as we follow John's gospel, some of Jesus' miracles were private miracles, weren't they? The, the wedding feast of Cana was like just a few people saw it. Uh, Jesus healing the, the man's son from a very far distance. That was a, a private miracle. But some of Jesus' miracles are quite public. In chapter 2, verse 23, he's walking around Jerusalem performing many signs, okay? And many people are believing in him. He's performing many miracles, and many people are believing in him. So much so, that when Nicodemus meets up with him in chapter 3, verse 2, he basically confesses to Jesus, we've been talking about you. And we've come to the conclusion that no one can do the miracles or the signs that you're doing except they were sent from God. Right? That's literally what Nicodemus says. And it's not just his own opinion. He's saying, we've come to this conclusion as a group of people. No one can do this unless God has sent him. So that's a bunch of miracles that they saw. Then in John chapter 5, he's just healed a man who's been lame for 38 years. And the question they ask isn't, who healed you? The question they ask is, who told you to break the Sabbath? Right? But remember, Petri dish. Search your own hearts, right? This is us sometimes uh, as well. So no one is denying the miracles here. No one's calling Jesus a charlatan or a fraud. They've watched people's lives changed. They've seen people healed. And yet they don't believe that he is 
the sent one. So we have John the Baptist, who's, who they were rejoicing and saying, he's the Messiah. They don't believe. We have the miracles that they literally saw happen. And they don't believe. And then finally, uh, Jesus says, you also have the scriptures, the greatest. And uh, what happens, what rabbis did back then is they would go from the, the, the sort of the smallest to the better and then the best argument. Okay, so the smallest argument, the better argument, and then the best argument. And the best argument, says Jesus, is it's all over the Bible. It's all over the scriptures if you would read it. Verse 37 to 47 Uh, and, And we'll just read verse 39. You search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify, which bear witness of me. Verse 46. If you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Jesus is saying the Old Testament scriptures all point to him. From, from Genesis to Malachi, everything, the prophets, the law, and, the, and the, the Psalms are all pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. We've been doing that quite a bit here at Union Chapel, and we've spent a lot of time looking at this in our rereading the Torah. We spent a lot of time looking at this. Uh, the idea that the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, pointing to him, pointing to the fact that he's the Messiah. And he says, you've been reading it. And yet you don't see that I'm the Messiah. And it's all so obvious, but you don't see that I'm the Messiah. You trust Moses, and yet you don't believe his words about me. If you really believe Moses and the prophets, says Jesus, then you would believe me. So we have three aspects of the Father's public witness of the Son. And uh, here it is in a literated outline form. Okay, John, here we go, right? They sent to John the Baptist... They saw the miracles of Jesus and they searched the Old Testament scriptures and yet they don't believe. Okay? Why not? How can you not believe? How can you see all that evidence, listen to the prophets, read the scriptures, watch the miracles and respond in unbelief? And that's what we're going to do uh, as we come to, that's meant to be point two, the motives for unbelief. And here's my argument Again, as an ex-atheist, here's where I'm going in on Tuesday of all about. Here's my conversation with every person who demands evidence from me. Unbelief is never, ever due to a lack of evidence. It's never that. Anyone who says that is lying to you. Let God be true and every man a liar. And God says everyone already has enough evidence. Okay? Everyone has that. And the whole, the whole of Exodus to Deuteronomy... Is Moses, or the whole of Deuteronomy essentially, is Moses shaking the people of Israel and saying, You saw him do all this, and yet you didn't believe. They saw, and they didn't believe. The Samaritans, on the other hand, they didn't have the miracles. Jesus didn't do miracles when he went to Samaria. They didn't have John the Baptist. They didn't have a prophet since Moses. All they had was the book of Moses. And when Jesus came to them, they all believed. And he's like, how come these people, the unclean ones, can believe in me? And you, with all of your evidence, refuse to believe. Now, again, as we look at this, these people are the Petri dish. It's not for us to read and condemn them, but for us to read and judge our own hearts. That's the point of John's gospel, that you would believe and receive Christ. 
So let's look at it. This is what Jesus says. He knows the hearts of men. Why these people will not believe. The first reason out of the five reasons, verse 37 to 38, God's word is not in you. God's word isn't in you. The Father who sent me has testified of me. You didn't hear his voice at any time, nor have you seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Although they searched, this, and this is, I, I have to tell you, as I studied this passage to preach it, I wasn't going, you pesky Jews. I was searching my heart. Am I like this at times? Even though I'm a Christian, I believe that Christ rose from the dead. Do I sometimes act this way? Although they searched the scriptures and they memorized them. These guys in John 5 knew more Bible than you do. Any of you in this room, they knew more, they knew more than you, right? They could quote like massive passages of scripture. So they search the scriptures daily. They memorize them. They teach them. They discuss them all of the time. It's literally their job to discuss it. They put it on their doorposts, on their hands and on their heads. Or in modern times, they had their Bible reading plans. They had their verses on the fridge. They listened to their sermons. But they didn't listen to believe and to obey. They didn't see the truths of God's word. They didn't have the word of God in their hearts. It was all outward externalism. It was all about what we do rather than what we believe in our heart of hearts. Here's what challenged me about this so much. They had mastered the text, but the text had never mastered them. And they weren't humbled by the word of God. They would read passages of scripture and read about the good guys and be like, that's us. And read about the bad guys and like, that's them. And they were never humbled by the word of God. And Jesus says, that's why you don't believe. Because it's, it's all outside. You read it. It's in your minds and you know it. You have it on your hands and your head and your doorposts. But it's not in here. So when I come as the very word of God incarnate, you do not believe that I am the sent one. The second reason is they don't want to believe. Verse 39 to verse 40. You search the scriptures and then you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. They're unwilling to come. They have no desire to come. They refuse to come. It's like John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking, or John speaking, he says, light has come into the world, but you don't want to come because your deeds would be exposed. You don't want to come to the light because then your sin is laid bare out in the open. The third reason that, that Jesus gives is verse 41 to 42 They don't love God. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. This should challenge us, right? These are people like us. They came to the services. They dressed the part. They knew their Bibles. They had their scrolls. These guys are masters of the text. These were the ones who people looked up to as the most righteous amongst them. They were considered, they had the reputation of being the God lovers. And Jesus, who knows their hearts, turns around and says, you don't love God. You don't love him. They claim to love him with all their soul, heart, mind, and strength. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, can see right into their hearts and can see that there's no real love of God in them. These strict religious people were outwardly obedient than anyone else in the entire world has ever been. But they don't love God. 
Do you realize that that can be us as well? We can be doing all of this. We can be doing all of our Christian stuff without actually loving God. How deadly that can be for externalism to take over our lives. But the question I'm left with as I look at these three reasons is, but why? Why though? Why don't they have his word in them? Why don't they want to come? Why don't they love him if they've mastered the text, if they've been reading it, if they've been striving to obey? As Paul says, they have a zeal for God. Why don't they just get to the point where they realize he's the Messiah? And here's the real clincher, the fourth point. Verse 43 to 45, they love man's praise. They love the praise of men. Verse 43 to 44, I have come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you would receive him. How can you believe? In other words, it's impossible for you to believe because you receive honor from one another and you do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. They love the praise of men. They love the attention and the reputation they have for being outwardly upright. They love the applause of men. They love the popularity, the prestige, the power, and the prosperity it brings them. They love being in control. They love to be in the center of attention. They love it all to be about them. In every story of the four Gospels, the proud people hated Jesus. The prosperous, the powerful, the controlling, the elite, and the religious hated Jesus because they loved themselves. You see, at this point, if they were to turn around and embrace Jesus as the Messiah, it would mean a few things for these people. For them to admit Jesus is the Messiah would mean a few things. Number one, it would mean that they would have to admit that they were wrong about what they thought that the Messiah would come to do. They were teaching the people of Israel, the Messiah is going to come and exalt us. And they're going to crush all of our enemies and exalt us because we're the righteous ones. We're the worthy ones. And, and when he comes, we, the religious leaders, boy, he's going to be in our circle. And he'll be at the top of our little hierarchy. And Jesus comes along and that's not what happens. And for them to turn around and say, he's right, would also be for them to turn around and say, and we're wrong. And if you love yourself, here, here's my word for you this morning. If you love yourself, you will never admit you're wrong. Even though you are like 95% of the time. Right? If you're a human like me, a, a broken sinner like me, restored by Jesus. The second reason uh, they would not be prepared to admit that Jesus was the Messiah is because they would have to admit that they were sinners. As bad as tax collectors, prostitutes, and Samaritans. This is what Jesus says to them. You're not coming to me because you don't think you're sick. So I'm not going to heal you. I'll heal the ones who come to me with their sicknesses. You don't come to me because you think you can see. But the fact that you think you can see is evidence that you're actually blind. And so for them to say, I have sin in me, is to say, I'm just like the publican. I'm just like the prostitute. I'm just like the, the, the uncouth. And they're not prepared to do that. So their love for themselves, their pride in seeking honor from one another, it'll destroy their lives. But you know what? The broken ones and the weak people, the sinful people, the outcasts, 
the humbles, and the afflicted ones. They were all drawn to Jesus. He drew them to him. They wanted to come because they already knew they were needy. (laughs) And so when Jesus says, I've come for the needy ones, they're like, yep, that's us. But the pride, I'm not needy. I didn't come. You're not coming for that. And so they can't come. They can't believe. Jesus literally says, you cannot believe. Verse 44. How can you believe if you're going to stay in that prideful state? And then verse 46 to 47, our, our final reason, they don't actually believe scripture. He says in verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is literally saying to these men who mastered the text, you don't actually believe it. And that can be true of us. We can really believe that. We can be those people who know the passages, who know the commands of the New Testament, and we don't obey them. And when Jesus looks into your hearts and he says, if you're not obeying it, it just literally means you don't actually believe it. Bottom line. But, but listen, that sounds like I'm being really um, harsh this morning. But look at these two verses. that We're coming to a close here. Jesus isn't saying these things out of a heart of hatred toward these men. Jesus loves these men. These religious leaders who hate him, who are harassing him, tormenting him, and now plotting his death. He loves them. He knows what they're going to do to him in a couple of years' time. And he loves them. Look what he says to them in verse 34. I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things to you. That you might be saved. Oh, religious leaders, if you would just humble yourselves, if you just realize who I am, if you just if you just break open that hardened heart and realize your sinfulness and your brokenness and that pride, I would save you. I'm telling you this because I want you to be saved, he says in verse 34. And then in verse 40, he says, You're not willing to come to me that you may have life. He's basically saying, if only you would come and have life. If only you would come and receive eternal life through me. So if if you're not a Christian this morning, and you're here, we're so grateful that you're here. The passage doesn't tell us how these people responded to these accusations. That's verse verse 47. How will you believe my words? Then chapter 6, verse 1, after these things. We, we don't actually get told the response. Why not? Because the author wants you to put yourself into the shoe of the religious leaders and say, how do you respond to something like that? How do you respond to the claims of Jesus? There's only two choices for you then this morning. Uh, and here they are. Just like these, these religious leaders. You can admit that Jesus is right in what he's saying. That he really is God in the flesh. Come to see of sinners. Admit that you've been wrong about him. Admit that you are a sinner and that you need him. Some of these men here, these religious leaders, according to the book of Acts, they became followers of Jesus. The book of Acts says, and many Pharisees and Sadducees came to him. Right? It could have been some of these guys here in John chapter 5. They searched their hearts over what Jesus said here. They saw their sin. They were convicted and they trust in Jesus and they were saved and they were given eternal life. You know, imagine one of those guys here uh, later on realizing and crying out to God, God, I'm so sorry that I rejected him at the start. I believe he's the Messiah and Jesus forgiven him. I don't hold it against you. 
Sadly, there's the other alternative. You can harden your heart against him even more. You can remain angry at him for what he's saying to you here in this passage. And we know that some of these religious leaders continue to plot his death. Some of these men here would have been part of the conspiracy to have him crucified later on. And some of them would have been involved in persecuting the early church after Jesus rose. You have that choice. Believe and be saved and transformed or not believe. And before I close, what about us as Christians this morning? Jesus is speaking here to deeply religious people. The people who looked down on others. The people who forgot how sinful and needy they were. The people who knew the Bible back to front. And he rebukes them for their unbelief and for their love of self. You know that love of self is the most destructive thing in this whole thing. And it's, it's so destructive. Every sin is love of self. It starts, it's the root of every other sin is love of self. So, knowing that you're loved by Jesus, if you're in him, let me ask you these two searching questions as we close. Do you really believe all of this? Do you really believe this? See, if we really believed it, this whole book, it would change how we live every moment of our lives. We would begin listening to it so as to obey it, not just to collect more information about it. We would listen to sermons and we would apply what we hear. We would read the Bible and we would do what it says. Our relationships with each other would be vibrant and lovely. Our relationship with the world would be engaging and compelling. Our relationship with our finances, our time, our energy, everything would change. Our prayer life, our fellowship, everything. If we we really come to believe this stuff. By the grace of God at work in our lives. This would be the transformation. My second question for us. No, I'm asking this question myself. I've been asking it all week. Do you love yourself more than you love God? See, that's what Jesus told these religious people. Everything you're doing is to get attention from each other. To appear to be righteous. To be better than others. To get your own way. In your heart this morning. And in mine. Is pride Love of self, unbelief, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, desire for control. So be honest in your assessment of yourself this morning. Go deep into your own heart and see what's down in there. Knowing that Jesus loves you for what's in there anyway. And here's the other thing I challenge you to do. Get to know, this is, this is risky business. Get to know the other people in the congregation. Become part of each other's lives. And eventually begin to ask them the question, what do you see in me? Oh, man. What do you see? I'll, I'll be your friend. I'll love you. Uh, I'll, I'll, but we've built a relationship of trust and affection for one another. What do you see in me? And then, and then walk with Jesus with it. And help him. Or, and give it to him. And, and let him defeat it in you. I want to use myself to give you some courage to do the same. If I can close here, I don't always live like the, the gospel is true. Right? Fire me if you want, leaving in two months anyway. I don't always believe the gospel to be true. I walk in doubt. I walk in sin. I walk in shame. I don't always believe that this message is the truth. And there's moments of, of foolishness. There's moments of sin. There's moments of brokenness. But we sing a hymn here 
that he will hold me fast. And in my unfaithfulness, he remains faithful. I believe, help my unbelief, right? And we can walk in victory because of Jesus, not because of my incredible ability to believe this stuff, but because of him working in me. And my second confession before you this morning is this. I don't always choose God's way over my own way. I don't. It's so much easier sometimes to choose my own way, like instantly. The, the regret comes like three hours later or five weeks later, right? I don't always choose God's way. I can, sometimes I even convince myself that I am choosing his way when I'm just choosing my own way. Lost in pride and sin and deceit of self. But, I, but I'll tell you this. I want to grow though. I want to grow more to be like Christ. And if you're truly his, you'll want that as well. And as Jesus says here in John 5, that's what he wants to do. He wants to do that. He wants to transform us, make us more like himself through being with him. It's the very reason he came. So I just hope that whether you're a believer or unbeliever this morning, what this has done for you is it's compelled you to search your heart and see if these things are true of you. And, and they are actually, of every one of us, and to bring them up to Jesus and let him do his wonderful work of helping us to be more like him by grace. We're not going to close with a, with a hymn um, because it's, it's 10 past 12. And, uh, you know, so we'll just pray. Father, we, we just come before you this morning as, uh, as needy people. Thank you so much that we, we don't have to come before you as perfect ones or righteous ones in our of ourselves. If we did, we would become either liars or we would never come. But we thank you that we can come with, with our full hearts of, of brokenness and emptiness before you. Uh, with full honesty and full disclosure, you know the very hearts, you know the very depths of them. You know everything and you, and you can see right into these religious leaders and you can see right into ours. God, we're, we're so dishonest with others at times about uh, where we are with you. And we're so dishonest with ourselves. We can lie to ourselves about how close we are to you at times. And our motives for doing things. I, I just pray, God, that as we've sang these hymns and prayed together and looked into your word this morning, that you would just cause us to be more honest, more searching of ourselves, uh, to see if we, how much we believe these things, and to see how much we love you, and, and to see and, and to really search out, how much we love the praise of men, how much we do things uh, to be in the center, to, to get our own way, um, to look good even when we're not. So help us with this, Lord. What you want for us is to be truly more like you, more like your son, not to fake it until we make it. So by your grace, I pray you would give us the courage to do that. And by your grace, you would transform us more and more into him. It's in his name, the word of God, the son of God, the Messiah and Lord that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.